0: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash B-O-F, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-O-F to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash B-O-F. Taking pictures not like it used to be when
3: I started taking pictures say, can I take your picture? They used to put on their best suit and comb their hair.
4: There's never been a time when the entire world was in the same position, you know, with, with this pandemic. How does it make you feel about what you do, what you've done?
3: First of all, in photography, you're finished, anyway way because the iPhones killed photography in a way. I'm not very nostalgic. I think the past is the past and you can never get it back. It's the future that's interesting.
5: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF Podcast. This week, our editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, sits down with David Bailey, the famed photographer who has authored dozens of books. But his new book, Look Again, is an autobiography, and as the title suggests, Bailey is less interested in reminiscing about the past and more keen on pushing himself and others to look beyond first impressions. Here's David Bailey, Inside Fashion.
4: Do you remember um, a while ago we worked together with Debbie B?
3: No, I don't remember Debbie B. Who's
4: Debbie B? Deborah B. She did a she did a magazine called Scene Magazine. Um, I
3: remember Scene
4: Magazine. We did a story on um, supermodels, like a f- ten years later, that sort of story.
3: <coughs> it sounds awful. Was it awful?
4: It was really good. <laughs> The photos were really, really good. They were they were sort of they were really beautiful black and white portraits. So um I'm we'll start at start with Look Again. Um Look Again, why have you called your book Look Again? I'm curious.
3: Well I always try and look look twice when I look at anything to make sure I've seen it properly. And I figure everyone does that. So it's a good catchy name too. They wanted to call it Look. And I said, no, call it Look Again.
4: And that's what you want people to do, because that's what an autobiography gives people. Do you think of it as an autobiography?
3: I just think of it as another book, really. I've done so many books. How many books? I've done about 30, no more. 45. 45 books. <laughs> so yeah, incredible. The first biography.
4: But, I, you know, I, I, I think that when people write a a, a book like this, um looking back on such an incredible career um, it it usually has a, there's usually like a very clear that there's a very clear purpose I mean are uh, you uh, you know people want to settle scores or people want to want to correct misconceptions or you know people want to want to make sure that their story is told the way they want it to be told how do
3: how do you feel about look again what was that <laughs> I didn't change it much. It's more or less as it as it is. The lawyers changed some things, but that was for legal reasons. But there's nothing uh, I objected to. It was fine. Uh, I figure if you're asking someone to do a biography with you, that he should do what they think. Otherwise, you don't get somebody and then do what you think. It's very uh, bad creativity.
4: <laughs> and uh, have you known James a long time?
3: No. Apparently, I met him in years ago when he was dashing young Chelsea bloke, but I haven't seen him since, since this book, since the last two or three years, but we we became great, kind of good friends. And how was it working on the book for you?
4: How how did you find going back into the past and meeting people who you hadn't seen for a long time and, you know, having conversations with them? um, How was it
3: for you? Well, most of them I've been in touch with anyway. I I mean, Gene I talked to about at least once, twice a year and uh that's the only one i i saw about him another i see all the time and people like that I, I think it wasn't difficult it was just normal really it's like oh give him a phone give him a phone call
4: i i liked uh, there was a funny there was a funny sort of subtext in the book you would say oh i never liked him or he never liked me or i never liked him you know and I, I, I you put cecil beaton on the cover and and you said you didn't like him very much.
2: It's a
4: great great picture on the cover. I mean, that picture is so provocative, I think.
3: Yeah, it's my picture, but still it's a... I forget how we shot it, it's in mirrors. But, uh, no, Cecil was very snobbish when I first met him, but he came around and he said to make, the editor of uh, Vogue, female. Miller, I think, said, "I, I. I suppose the Lady's got some kind of comedy charm, but I can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> but later we became friends. But he was—he was. Remember, he was very talented. So I forgive everybody who's very talented there. Mr. Miners, he uh, could do everything. He was a great designer. He did my Fair Lady designs and things yeah. like that. Fashion yeah. design. that white scene of all the of the races where she says, Move your bloody ass," whatever it is when they're watching the ascot wearers, he did all those costumes. I think he was an exceptional man. Even he like, was
5: um,
4: kind of the diametric opposite of you, uh, wasn't he, in his um, approach to his, uh, his work?
3: Yeah, he, he could say that. He sort of had a nice thing, instead of saying cheese, he said lesbian, which I thought was...
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, he, didn't he have a long affair with Greta Garbo? That would, that would explain a lot.
3: Well, oh, I think that's a bit missed. I mean, I'm not sure you ever, ever went further than being very, very good friends. Very good friends.
4: You, you know, this book, I imagine this book will probably introduce you in a way to people. Um, there will be, you know, there'll be people who've who've seen your photos, but who, who maybe don't know the story. And so the, I come back to that cover photo, the way you... That's the way you want people to see you. I was so intrigued by that photo because you look so sort of sultry in, in, in you know, black leather pants and that very come-hither look. It's quite it's quite a striking um, image to choose.
3: That was then. There's, there's lots of images to go through, but it was sort of in the middle of my age, really. So I wasn't very old or very young, so it was. And I thought the picture was intriguing because you weren't sure who was doing what.
4: Yes, exactly. <laughs> And that's that's really yeah, that really is look again. Because I think, um, you know, in the book that 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 is the story that that you know, Terence Donovan said you were never ambitious, that you just wanted to do I mean you you as a group, the Black Trinity or whatever you were, you know, whatever uh, Norman Parkinson called yeah. you. Um, you just wanted to do the work. You weren't ambitious. I'm curious about that.
3: Well uh I'm not sure what Terry meant. I mean, I think maybe we're not ambitious against other people's photographs or there was no competition between us. We all did completely different ways of approaching the camera. I mean, Terry did more men than he did women and I did more women and Duffy was sort of, he was the intellectual of us. He was the intellectual one, not Donovan. And we were a couple of weeks. (laughs) uh, Duffy was—he uh, was completely original guy, went his own way. I mean, he thought differently from everyone. They are both Irish, because I've always been attracted to the Irish by some fluke Irish. I grew up with Irish and Jews, and I've sort of been friends with them ever since. Uh huh. And the the
4: the, the early—you know—people just don't really live lives like that anymore. Um, the the early days, starting out in the Blitz, and and all those stories about. Um, all the stories you tell about about your childhood and about your family, and you know, it, it it just it just doesn't happen like that. Maybe it does. I mean, maybe it does, but it it's such an incredible story. I guess I really I really wanted to, I wanted a lot more. I, I I wondered how much more there is to say whether you felt that, I mean, you said lawyers address the book, but I wonder, I wondered how much more there was for you to to tell or whether you felt you'd said everything you want to say about your past.
3: Well, I tried to say it in the nicest possible way. I didn't, <laughs> want, didn't want to upset anybody. You know, I've never really hated anybody. Maybe one man I hated, but he's... I don't know where he is now. But the... Uh, no, I've always been friends with everybody. It's sort of a bit easier to be friends than to be enemies. So you have to make an effort to be friendly. And remember, being a photographer, you have to deal with everyone from... A little bloke tramped down the corners of the Queen. So you have to know how to behave with who you're talking to.
4: I mean, you had some pretty intense things happen to you. I mean, you were you were in danger a lot. It feels
3: like to me. Well, not really. More and more if I was in Naga Hills or somewhere like that, that was more dangerous probably than the East End. But uh, what kind of danger do you mean?
4: Well, I mean, from you, you either had the barking boys beating you to a pulp they were hooligans they weren't
3: you see the craze were professional villains they made money out of it whereas the barking boys were just hooligans that's why they were well then you, had,
4: you had ronnie cray kind of breathing down your neck and then you had the naga hills and you had you had the work the, the work you did the sort of activist work that you did you know when you went when you went to um the sudan and and photographed
3: in oh, parties, yeah ethiopia yeah. and yeah the so I was in most of the charities. In fact, I got arrested at at Sudan. I got at the airport there. If you the, what's the capital of Sudan called, um, it, oh, God
4: knows, uh, uh, D- D- Dakar? Da-
3: no, no,
4: Dakar? No, is it Dakar?
3: No, don't know. I think of it as soon as we're finished speaking. But the uh, the bloke said to me, "You have got no entry passport." <laughs> and I said, like, "What does that mean?" He says. We think you could be a spy. <laughs> so that was not very. with this six foot six, Nigerian bloke. And he said, I think we better go and talk in a room. So they dragged me off to a room. And eventually I convinced him. He said, But why don't you got an uh, entrance engine stamp? I said, because I came in at five or four in the morning. He said, but the airport's not open at five in the morning. I said, it's the Chicago, Shikogi's plane. <laughs> <laughs> no, that means more mess, because he said, What do you do with Chicago? Said, Whatever his name was. LD, yeah. So just delivering uh, a couple of jeeps, and they were on the plane. The jeeps. I sat sat in the jeeps most of the way there because there was no seats in the plane. It was uh, one of those, I don't know, cargo planes. I suppose you'd call it. And then in the end, he believed me, so I did all right. I think I missed the plane, but I got a plane back eventually.
4: But did you did you feel um, you know there's 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 always there's been a lot of sort of a lot written about photographers who go who put themselves into these extreme situations i mean um did you feel did you feel that that was a sort of was it sort of addictive in a way to to go to these places and to test yourself in no, such
3: extreme no, ways no it wasn't that it was just part of the thing if you're going to go to the naga hills or to sort of afghanistan or wherever those places that i went uh, you know that might happen, but it could happen in East End, it could happen in Bond Street, really. I hate the attitude it could happen in Bond Street as well as Naga Hills, it doesn't seem so scary. (laughs) But there's villains everywhere, there's nice people everywhere. Um, I I just saw the documentary
4: on Helmut Newton and I thought it was really interesting when he said he used his camera as protection. And you know, when he was photographing June, when she was really, when she was really ill, when she had that terrible operation, the only way he could look at her was through the lens of his camera because it was just so terrifying what he was
3: seeing. Well, did, Helmet, you, did you I, ever feel that? No, no, but I just want to say how much I loved Helmut's work. I think he was a, a great, great photographer. We used to argue quite a lot about different things, but he was great, Helmut. He uh, was completely original. He, he sort of invented a way of doing the nude in a way because they were... Yeah without being nude. I mean, he was a kind of very special guy. And June was very, very funny. To make sure the two of them was made one person, in a way, because June used to come up with the ideas and Helmut used to put them into reality, or, or Helmut's reality, anyway, used <laughs> something else.
4: <laughs> but I thought that was, he seemed so fearless and so kind of, uh, and, and so radical, in a way. I was quite surprised to, to hear Hear somebody say that he actually was quite a fearful person, and he used his camera to protect himself. I, you know that, that that gives you the distance from difficult things. I thought that was really interesting.
3: The camera does do that. You sort of you don't really see the picture until you get back home and look at the computer or the contact. And think, my God, that was scary. But at the time, the camera seems to protect you. It's absolutely true. There. That's why. Lots of those war photographers get shot, I think, because they think, yeah, you know, yeah, he can't be
4: really touched. Yeah, exactly. Like Sean Flynn, I mean, Errol Flynn's son, he's the famous one, isn't he, who disappeared in Vietnam. With, um, you know quite a lot about photography, don't you? <laughs> yes, I do, I do. I mean, there's, there's something else another of your friends said that I thought was really interesting. Bruce Weber said, you always take pictures of what you want to be, which I find quite interesting as well.
3: Yeah, well, yeah, well, Bruce, he's very intellectual, Bruce. I mean, he's a, he's a kind of, he's really well, he's really a good guy, I think, Bruce. I'm uh, sure he wasn't Bruce.
4: <laughs> yes, yeah. But, but, but what, do you, what do you think of that? I mean, what do you think of that as a notion that, that, that there's a sort of, I guess what he's saying, there's a kind of wish fulfilment
3: in photography in a way when you're taking pictures? Well, if you do any advertising, and advertising is the most corrupt in a way, because it's always showing you a better world, because that's the way you sell things. People have to look up for that, say, if, if you want to get to the eight-year-olds, you photograph 12 year olds so it's always, I forgot the word, I, I had a stroke about a year ago, and I got distemper, I call it, but it's not, it's vernacular. I call it vernacular distemper, but it's vernacular something.
4: Yeah, I know, I know. My husband has the same thing. He had a stroke as well, so it's the same. He just loses words, so. Um,
3: I lose words. Uh, I've always been a bit like that, so I've always been dyslexic, so it doesn't matter too much. <laughs> it's, it's quite nice being like that because you forget what you've seen. So sometimes I see the same movie again. I think, shit, this is good. Catherine way she says, I saw it last week. <laughs> 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 yeah, I forgot that
5: one.
4: <laughs> you get double pleasure from this. You things. know that 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 happens to every, well, it happens to me a lot. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it doesn't happen to everyone, but uh, it's true. I can't believe the things I forget. I see something, and I think I will never ever forget this, and I, I, I must. You know, I don't have to write it down. I will never forget this. It's
3: gone. You know, gone. Mm-hmm. I forget it. Well, sometimes they send me pictures and. I say, did I do that? <laughs> we got it. We've got it right. <laughs> well, was- uh, yeah,
4: I wanted to ask, do you do you go back and look at your look at your old pictures? Do you do you go back and look at Boxer Pinups or Goodbye Baby and I'm in and and
3: reflect oh, yeah. on them? Boxer pinups was kind of special in a way. It was the book that represented the sixties in a way. It wasn't a book, it was a load of loose pictures. It's very expensive now, so I don't look at it often. <laughs> I mean, get some pen you lose a thousand pounds. <laughs> but I think it's quite a good book. But uh, I'm sorry, I forgot your question,
4: see? No, I mean do you ever go back and look at them and reflect yeah. on them and
3: yeah. And... I, I do it now because everyone's interested in sort of seeing them or doing a new book of them or something like that. So normally I don't look back. I'm not very really nostalgic. I think the past is the past and you can never get it back. So you can't yeah,
5: exactly. get it Yeah.
3: It's
4: the future that's interesting. I, I just think it's really interesting. You know, Elton John never listens to his old music. David Bowie never listened to his old music. And it just seems to me when you've got such an incredible body of work, I would just be looking at it all the time. And and it would just be so, I well, maybe I wouldn't be if I'd actually created an incredible body of work. But, you know, I just wonder when you look at that book, um, when you look at, say, Goodbye Baby and Amen, do do you remember, like the you know the picture of Julie Driscoll, for example? Remember Julie Driscoll? Incredible. And I mean, do you look at that, and it all comes back to you. You know, you just get that incredible surge of what an incredible time it was. Yeah,
3: I look at the layouts a lot and think, Christ, we should have done the layouts. They've done my layouts mostly. I mean, right from after that, really because I couldn't bear the way art directors put all black lines around everything and put the... Yeah. The place. So sometimes I look at it and I think, shit, I'd like to lay that one out again, do it properly this time. Or probably, well, I think it's properly. Uh, as, yeah. as I made the image, I think I've got the right to say how it should be presented.
4: <laughs> there's a there's a very perverse thing, I thought, that the picture of Brett, Brian Epstein is huge, and the picture of the Beatles, is, the picture of Lennon and McCartney is really tiny. <laughs> I thought that's that felt. It, given in the in the book, you say you weren't crazy about the Beatles. You like the Stones, so yeah,
3: well, um, uh, they're all interesting. Uh, especially uh, the one who got shot was interesting. John Lennon. Um, yeah. yeah, I like John because he was edgy. Paul's a really nice guy, but he's a really nice guy. Whereas, uh, I, uh, I like the edgy
4: one better. <laughs> When, so when you were taking pictures, you liked a bit of kickback from people, did you? Well, you
3: get, if, if you know, there's two kinds of pictures. There's people that come in and bad news and people that come in in good news. And, uh, I mean, taking a picture is not like it used to be. When I started taking pictures, I'd say, can I take your picture? They used to put on their best suit and comb their hair. I mean, now you want the opposite, but it's quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Joe was always uh, edgy. He had his first joint with me on top of the Adelive Club, so he said, he said, I guess I made mean it now, I'm taking a joint at the Adelive with Bailey. <laughs> that was ages ago.
4: And, and Margaret Thatcher was, was I'm not, I was intrigued by that story, that she wanted to sit and chat.
3: Yeah, well, she puts everything aside by the hour, or the half hour, so... She knew everything she'd do for three months' time. She said on Thursday, then so and so June 27th, I'm seeing this, I'm doing that. And she she put an album aside each time we spoke I'll take taking pictures. And I'm I'm quite quick. So after 20 minutes, I said, I have got it, go. I think I've finished it. And she said, Well, now we just have to have tea and sit and talk because I've got nothing to do for the next 32 minutes or 50 minutes, because she knew exactly what her time's were. I thought that was interesting. He spoke of Helmut. Helmut thought she was the sexiest woman in the world. He was dying to get her into bed if he could. He thought she was wonderful. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's an image. <laughs> I think she might have liked Helmut because he was quiet. He said what he thought. Yeah. And... He probably was
4: creative in bed too, so maybe I don't know if Margaret Thatcher would have enjoyed that or not. But um, it's definitely something to reflect on as time passes. Mm-hmm. What, what? Um, when you say that people came in a bad mood and people came in a good mood, who, who, who was the, who was the biggest surprise that you ever photographed? Because you photographed, you have photographed. I mean, who haven't you photographed? You really, there can't be very many people you haven't. You haven't photographed.
3: No surprises, really. I always expect the unexpected. Uh So it never throws me. Uh I don't know. Margaret's actually turned out. I'd heard that she only gave people five minutes. She gave me an hour. They said the Queen only gives people five minutes. She gave me half a day. So it's all been quite easy for me. Uh, no, I, but if someone's difficult, I don't want them to be undifficult. Does that mean? I might get yeah. something. I might get, you know, I'd, I'd probably insult you because you can't, like the way you do your shirts and your hair. So I'd probably try and needle you somehow to get a reaction.
4: Because uh, I see. I get that from everybody anyway. It's I, okay. I can
3: see by, by your library. It's a bit like mine, actually. I can see all your art books. and. Uh-huh. You seem to like practice it's- a lot, do you? Uh, well i
4: work I've worked in fashion for a long time um and you know as an outsider uh, I never was a fashion person I was always an outsider uh, I want you were though did you, didn't you sort of feel that you were kind of an outsider all as well yeah I've always
3: felt like that but I think that was partly coming from the east end because from the east end going to vogue you met with a load of you know people who couldn't talk properly uh, uh, they uh, they <laughs> then I gradually learnt like, that posh people swear. I was, that was my first shock. I <laughs> heard a posh woman ask me what the F I was doing up a ladder. And I thought, oh my God, she swears. <laughs> <laughs> and but she turned out to be really nice. Uh, no, i have never been shocked. I was like shocked, pleased with nobody. I'm pleased with everyone. Everyone's sort of interested, really. The, even the ones that are a bit difficult. You see him, oh, he's not bad. There was one that, actually that was two hours late and I thought that was a bit rude. I mean, unless he's had traffic or he could have phoned. So it was uh, pissing down the rain. So I said, oh, we're going to do that. We're going to do this picture out in the rain. <laughs> oh, God, I'm soaking wet. <laughs> That's going to I remember.
4: But I guess, uh, I mean, the, the thing is when, like what, like what John Lennon said, when it's you taking the picture, people are... Uh, you know, it's, it's slightly different from somebody walking in to take a photo for a, you know, a magazine story or something. That it's a Bailey, it's a Bailey moment. So That's... you, it feels to me like you played off that. When I'm reading the book, it feels to me like you were able to kind of use that quite successfully throughout your career.
3: I think if you're a journalist or a photographer, more a photographer, you've got to use everything you've got because there's no. I mean, remember journalists used to call photographers their monkeys, i take a monkey yes. with me. <laughs> Yeah,
5: yeah.
3: It was a bit like, you know, being on the smudge, as they used to call it, it wasn't... It was like one of your choices when he said a jazz musician or a smudger. A smudger was a photographer, it was called smudge because all the pictures came out smudgy. Even when I'd been at Vaux for 10 years, I used to meet old oh, Fellas I knew from the East End, they say, Hi, oh, Dave, how are you, mate? i said say, I'm fine, I'm fine. he said, you're still on the smudge?
4: <laughs> but you make it sound in the book like they were doing that because they felt they were keeping you keeping you in your place when they said that. They didn't want you to get a big head from being this sort of, you know, famous
3: person. You can't have a big head in the East End. They seem like knock it out. <laughs> oh, really? Oh. Yeah. I mean, I, have to be, I was careful what I said to my mum. I mean, she was great, my mother, but... Uh, she used to call it them and us on my girlfriends what their background was. She's either one of us or she was one of them. <laughs> it
4: wasn't- I just, I uh, reading the book, the stories about the women you brought home to your mother. I mean, it's pretty incredible. I mean, Jean Shrimpton, Penelope Tree, Catherine Deneuve. I mean, it, it's not, not they're not the women that, they're not the, the women that, are, average East End mum would imagine her boys, her boy would, would end up with.
3: Yeah, I think she, I don't think she worried about, she j- just worried about how pretentious, or she was, she'd take, her, I'm not sure she knew what pretentious means, but she, she said, uh, I remember Jean said, I can't find the sheet that goes above. And my mother said, thought she was being awful because Jean was just asking a question. She said, the blankets above, what do you think? We do have a sheet above us. There's a sheet on the bottom and then a blanket. <laughs> and from then on, 4 G was one of them.
4: Oh dear. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know at the end of um at the end of Goodbye Baby and I'm in, there's a there's an essay called Epitaph. And there's a uh, is it Peter Evans who wrote who wrote the words in, in the book? And he, he makes a connection between the twenties and the sixties. And uh, what does he call the 60s? Like a, a something of the 20s, um, a, I don't know, encore or something of the 20s. Do you, do you agree with that that that, that, that that happened then and now we have a situation where you could almost write a similar thing about the connections between now, do you see those connections from having worked, you know, for the last, um 60 years um yeah can you see the way things
3: come in cycles I suppose so I mean I was never mad about Peter Evans writing but then uh he was kind of a journalist as far as I was concerned but uh have always been tricky journalists but uh it wasn't Francis Wyndham who did later books with me, but...
4: I, I, I was surprised Francis Wyndham didn't write that book, actually.
3: Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm not sure I was good friends with him then, but he uh. became a great friend. I thought he was the cleverest journalist around because... It was funny because, blow up, I didn't understand how they knew I paid £8 for the propeller. <laughs> Never told anybody that story. And ten years later, I was with Francis, and he's got a bit vivid. He said, baby, I've got a confession to make. I said, what's that? He said, I wrote a 200-page synopsis on a photographer for, for, uh, what was he called? Antonioni. Antonioni, yeah. Oh, that explains a lot of things. <laughs> because yeah, I suddenly realised that they knew I paid eight pounds for the, because he's one of the only people who knew because I was friends with him at the time. And I said, oh, that's all right. I said, that's what journalists do, you know.
4: Have you, have you, um, have you seen Blow Up lately? Do you ever Have you ever watched it?
3: Yeah, I saw it first with Catherine Deneuve on the in a little cinema in New York. Uh, on I forget, but was behind Bloomingdale's. We had to queue to get in. I remember, and uh,
2: yeah, I didn't I didn't
3: like all the, I didn't like Antonioni when I met him later. I mean, not when I met him when I knew because I, I never met him. I met him about ten years ago. I guess until his picture. But, uh, it was funny. It was a bit. Yeah, old then and he, he was m- m- making gestures. I said, I think he's making gestures at his paintings. And they said, what do you mean he's paintings? I said, I think he got them upside down. They were abstract. And we turned around the other way and he was happy. So I was right. They were upside <laughs> down. <laughs> he was right too. <laughs> so these couple of old farts were right.
5: <laughs> <people>. <laughs> they were wrong.
2: With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
4: But what do you, what do you think about about that I mean that is kind of the way the world sees you as 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 that character. Um do you feel was it in, was it wildly inaccurate, or I know all the jumping around that you said that that wasn't um, that wasn't no. true to the true to the moment. But.
3: It's like journalists take the key word of the a then it's stuck with you. I mean, you might say something about I don't like carriages, and they say Bailey's sensationally doesn't like cabbages, and it and suddenly it becomes the thing about you, which is just their invention. I mean. It's, it's very dodgy journalists because they're writing about some somebody different every day. One day and they're doing a, a coal mine and next thing they're doing a nuclear scientist. So how can they ever write about the truth? They don't really know it. so they have to make yeah. yeah. Uh, what storylines like newspapers. So that was really what happened with you, do you
4: think? That you got sort of you got so you well, you as you as you say in the book, did you invent Swinging London? Um, you and Nikki Haslam—did you invent swinging London? And it's—you're it's, so, you know, emblematic of 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 that moment.
3: Yeah, I think it's true in a way. Obviously, it wasn't just me and Nikki, but Nikki understood. I mean, he came from a class that didn't understand. Probably came from the Chelsea end of things. I used to call them Chelsea Eleven. But uh, so Nikki came from that, and really, this—I think for me, the swinging sixties came out as a 50s really, it mm. was, after the war it was so bleak in London, you need something to cheer you up right until, the war may have finished in 46, when they were 45, but it sort of really went on to 58, you're still in, you still still had to give coupons to buy a shirt or something, I mean, it, wars go on longer than the war, and the aftermath, it yeah. yeah. was worse, just as bad as the war, so I think that was a rebellion against the 50s and the 40s.
4: So, Absolute Beginners, the Colin McGuinness book, which you talk about, was really where you felt the 60s began, in a way.
3: Yeah, well, that was more like me than blow-up in a funny sort of way. He, I didn't know him then. I met him afterwards. He, was, he turned out to be a great friend of B. Miller, who was the editor of O, and I, I house once. And I, I He thought people were made up of two types. There was Romans and Greeks. So I said, well, I hope I'm a Greek. And he said, yes, you're right, you're a Greek. <laughs> No, uh, oh, what was it? The Greeks were
4: art and the Romans were power, according to Colin McGuinness.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I preferred the Greeks, I must
4: say. <laughs> uh, it, it, just thinking about that time, thinking about um, the, the incredible uh, explosive creativity and the sense of the new, you know, the shock of the new.
3: Do you think that's even possible anymore? No, I don't think, I think it's changed. Everything. Well, the, first of all, in photography, you've finished anyway because the iPhones killed photography in a way because everyone takes a picture. Now, when I first took a picture, I told you everyone put on their best blazer and they would put a tie on and comb their hair. Mm-hmm. But now the, the iPhone's taking pictures of people as they really are. So in a way, it's made it into a kind of folk art. It's kind of over made it over more democracy than the democracy you need. So I think it's quite a good idea in a way. But the, uh, I don't think you can ever do that again. I don't think the climate, it's going to be interesting when we get back from after this lockdown, the way it's changed everything, because it will change things. And I can't, I try to imagine why it changed and I can't really work it out yet, but I'm sure it's going to change everything.
4: I think fashion will be very different.
3: Yeah, well, people's priorities will be very different, probably. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, and how do, you feel, how do you feel about that? When, when you know, this is, this is a moment, it's such an extraordinary moment. Everybody says unprecedented, but the entire world is in this situation. Has there ever been a time when the... There's never been a time when the entire world was in the same position, you know, with, with this pandemic? how does it make you feel about um what you do what you've done um does it does it
3: yeah well in a way it's like it's a bit like the war was because the war was the same thing affected almost everyone around the world unless you were somewhere even china everywhere was having wars china had their worst war than we did uh everywhere in the world was war it's a bit like it's a bit like the i mean not that i knew the second world war because i was about when i when it finished but i knew enough to know it changed everything so this would change everything i mean the plate the last time changed it made it much better for the poor the plate
4: yes. yeah yeah
3: the we workers
4: and also led to the re- the renaissance in a way um so yeah. it, it led to a cultural renaissance after it had killed everybody so
3: Oh, but the poor had, poor had, kind of. They were very rare to get someone to come down in a tree. So it used to be fifty quid. Yeah. yeah. And he said, "Well, I want fifty quid for that. I don't want the seven and six. <laughs> they
4: could shop their labour around. That was true. Um, but but does it does it does it make you feel differently about your work when you it, because you realise now how much your work is a record of a moment that that is gone, and it it does attach. Quite a lot more significance to it in a way doesn't it
3: well i hope so in a way but i mean you don't know do you? yeah i think it's i don't know it's sort of most once a photographer dies he slightly becomes he fades away a bit i mean helmer hasn't because he was so powerful his pictures but eventually it will people say i didn't believe people, somebody dressed like that because they find it old-fashioned the way they dress but Uh, that's just them being superficial because they're only thinking of their time. When you look at a picture, when I look at a 17th century painting, I look at it as what the period was then, because it reflects the period, not what you think it would be. So everything's changed.
4: And yet the, the, the incredible Frisson, I mean, when I look at like, when I look at a Nadar photograph, for example, from the very beginning of photography And whether it's a photo of Baudelaire or whether it's a photo of a a basket of limbs, amputated, you know, amputated limbs, you just get that sense of somebody with this incredible charge of looking at something for the first time and being able to show people what it is that he's looking at. And I don't think photography would ever lose that kind of immediacy, no matter what, you know, the best photographs don't lose that immediacy, no matter when they
3: were taken. He was I mean, not the best photographer, really, one of the best, one the greatest photographers. But he didn't impose his creativity on it. He just took, he did pictures of what he saw. Yes. Rather than make it anyway glamorous and yes, that idea I always try and is probably my difference is I put on a white background. And I get closer and closer until I'm still closer. There's no white background left. Just the person do you think that do you think that's in a way
4: the impact that that was your impact that you took photos of what you saw like the photos of Jean Jean in New York of Jean Shrimpton in New York that it's just you looking at her they're not really fashion photos it's you looking at Jean Shrimpton in New York and I think that's why I mean the clothes are old old old-fashioned whatever that you know they look like the clothes of the period but there's something about that those pictures that Really has lasted. Really has. People go back and f- look at those photos, and they feel the change happening in those photos.
3: And didn't like them. The art director did, but the art yeah. director, was gay, so he was he was an outsider like me. So he believed he, he thought they were great. In fact, everyone was the art director. I don't think that they've got they seen the light of day because they couldn't believe I photographed Jean with a puddle in front. of <laughs> <laughs> Don't let your dog shit here. I mean, it's not the full story, but I've published a full story since. But I think it was the art director. There's three three or four gays that helped me in my beginning. First was my uncle Artie. I lived with him. He was uh, in the Royal Navy, during the war he was in the Navy, but he changed his clothes like three times a day. And we shared the same room. And... yeah, my father was always a bit against it. My father was a real Eastern geezer, if you like. And uh, he was when me sleeping with a gay person, I think. But was that he wasn't a pedophile? He was just gay. But, know but the- you, 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 you talk about that quite a lot in the book.
4: That that um that you were always being hit on by people. You were always waking up and you know men had their tongues down your throat or their hands on your leg or. And then you, it's quite interesting when you speculate a little bit, like maybe you should have explored that side of yourself. It's quite, I think I find that quite interesting.
3: No, I never, I prefer women, I always prefer women. I've got more women friends than I have men friends, and now even. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting, but. Uh, I mean, now
4: people would say, oh, you're in t- you were in touch with your feminine side or something like that, which is why women loved you so much and which is why it was so easy for you to insinuate yourself into into people's, you know, lives and, and get, do the work that you were able to do because you just seemed like, it seems anyway, that you were so fluid, you know, you were able to just float above all sorts of, get your way out of very tricky situations.
3: Yeah, I, I love women anyway, because from it goes back to my mother, I suppose, because seeing her, when well, she used to go up to the West End, I was seeing it in the book to uh, with her Aunt Dolly, they were both machinists.
4: I love Aunt Dolly.
3: She's great, yeah, but we just found a picture of her. And uh, they used to go to Selfridges and tie on the clothes, and then come home, come home and make them themselves. <laughs> And I remember the new look of my mother swirling around against the backlight of the windows in selfies. And I thought, my God, that's fantastic. I didn't know it was a photograph then, but when I grew older, I realized it was a photograph that I hadn't taken. But that was my first photograph in a way. It's just taken by my brain. I just thought it was a fantastic image of this woman spinning. And being in this new look, the, the skirt was quite long. I just thought it was fantastic. You know. I, 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 that, that's sort of a
4: rosebud moment for you, you know, where your consciousness kind of expanded into something completely new. You also talk about the lead soldier, the little toy soldier that you melted on your mother's iron as being another rosebud moment. Now, it's kind of curious about why that would be. And I should probably explain for people who don't know that rosebud moment is the end of Citizen Kane when you're trying to find out what the reason for somebody being the way they is they are is and his sled is being thrown on a fire, with all his stuff being destroyed, and it's called Rosebud. And so Bailey's Rosebud is a little lead soldier that he melted on his mother's iron. Now,
3: why? I'm curious about that. I, I put his was a little sailor, you know, in a kind of pea jacket. I think and I love this thing because he didn't have many toys. During the war, he had two toys: two old tinker, tinker, tinker toys, yeah. or something like yeah. T- Tonka different. toys.
4: Yeah,
3: they were big. These were little CD miniatures. But perfectly. I had two of those and a bunch of these little lead soldiers. I didn't realize that lead melted like that and I put it on my mother's iron to see what would happen. It just turned into a little silver ball and rolled down. It was, a silver, it was, it was sort of science fiction to me because it was Shape shifters, really.
4: <laughs> so why? Why was that a rosebud moment for you? I'm curious. What? What? What changed for you when the when the little figure melted? I lost him forever. All oh, was. I see. So loss, yeah.
3: Silver ball, but it, so it was transformed, and I kept the silver ball for some time, and then eventually I lost it.
4: You could sell the silver ball for sixpence, though. You said you could sell lead for sixpence, so
3: any size lead, you <laughs> was it, it was sixpence, so you knew you'd be ripped off, but that, that was I, I mean,
4: I think for me the my rosebud moment reading your book is to find out that you've been a vegetarian since you were 13 years old I mean, that is to me, that is that speaks volumes
3: Yeah, well it was hard in these then I must say I, <laughs> I can't eat anything that moves with me And no, I I was definite about that. I said, I don't want to eat meat. I remember arguing with my mother. I said, by the end of the century, which is gone now, everyone would be vegetarian. And I was half right. I think half the people, they are much more vegetarians now than there was. Anyway, it's, um, it's, uh, it's what you feel. I mean, my wife's a vegetarian now. So it's, my son's not. My son loves meat, but it's odd.
4: But was that that a point of principle for you or was that you being contrary or
3: was it both?
4: No, I don't know. I mean,
3: I even got my... I kept my RAF certificate because I was numbered in the Air Force for about two years in National Service, you know, in Singapore and Malaya. And I had a a doctor's certificate saying that I didn't eat meat, which was quite good because, I mean, I had the eggs cooked... The night before you know, like eating plastic things, but oh
4: yeah. God, I can't imagine what they fed you. Got me
3: out of eating meat though. But do you think um
4: uh, that a natural kind of contrariness um did kind of drive you I've lived from a very, very young age, that you were you when you saw something, when you would when you look at something you would wanna kind of Kind of make it create its opposite or, or, or de- deconstruct it and create a sort of opposite to it um
3: it creating so. i mean I, you know i made made most money that i ever made was directing commercials i directed i don't know years of commercials like over 25 years i think directing commercials and uh it was Good for me because I'm dyslexic, you see, and I look at a script and I, I see things immediately in pictures. I don't see the words. So I look at a script for a commercial and I can see it. Whereas most people say, well, I don't know where I'm going to put the camera to start with. But to me, it was common sense or uncommon sense, as my wife calls it. Uh, so it made making commercials quite easy for me because I can see exactly how the commercial should look because I think in pictures, I don't think in words.
4: But you made those incredible anti-fur commercials that are just—you know, you, you you were never afraid to kind of court controversy at all, were you? No, it was
3: not when I saw what the, well the controversy was Mary Whitehouse. I wasn't married at all. I knew she didn't stand a chance.
4: Um, I you you say in the book that you you lost interest in fashion in the seventies.
3: Yeah, well, I did fashion every day, all the time. A frock, another frock, and then another frock, and another girl, another frock, another girl. And editors were awful there. So, have you done the shoes? I said, no, he didn't tell me you what it's shoes. I didn't bring a shoe lens <laughs> <laughs> because he didn't know anything about photography. And they thought there was a thing called a shoe lens. So I said, <laughs> A shoe
4: lens? Are you sure there isn't one? It sounds very likely. <laughs> <laughs> But then somebody like Kate Moss comes along and complete completely sort of reanimates your, your interest in shooting models and clothes and things.
3: My idea of fashion is Gene Swimpton and Kate Moss and then everything in between. <laughs> Jean and, and Kate are sort of, they're not a bit alike, but they're similar in a way because mm. you stand there and you take pictures and Jean you can do the same thing with. They both, and, but everyone likes them, cats, dogs, gays, uh, vegetarians, everyone loves them. They all love Jean and Kate Moss, you can't go wrong. Kate, you should just stand there and laugh and you take a picture and it's fantastic. And Jean was, Jean knew everywhere. She had an instinct for moving where the light was. She knew exactly where the light was. I don't think it was conscious. Something in her told her, move that way because the light's better. And she always seemed to have a hand in the right place. And she's, you know, hands are difficult in stills. If they're in the wrong place, they can ruin everything. And Jean just knew where it was. And Kate doesn't use her hands. She just is, they're both exceptional. I'm glad I've met Kate and I'm glad I met Jean as well. Yeah. yeah. They are both very important people for much more than people think. What and what was so uh, from that
4: experience, what I mean, maybe you just said it there, but what 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 made a good model for you in in you know across that. That was 60 to 60 to the 21st century. That's a big span of time. And those those two women were, what did they, what did they, as far as modeling goes, why why were they so, for you, so wonderful?
3: Well, they made my job much oh, easier. Yeah. I didn't have to struggle to take lots of pictures. And just with Gina, it was a nod in the wing, and she knew what I meant. I just go, mm-hmm, and she changed <laughs> and Kate just does it anyway. <laughs> Kate, Kate's got her own agenda. She just finds something amusing and it comes out in her face. I mean, uh, modeling's quite a difficult job. I mean, they did a film about me. I think it was called We Take... No, we take, no I forget what it's called. Where someone played Jean, And I said, why are you getting a model? Why are you getting an actress to play a model? Well, you can get a model to be a model. <laughs> it's yeah. a bad casting to me, but they insisted and obviously they got it wrong.
4: Um, an actress played Gene Shrimpton. Who, who would take that on? God, that'd be a thankless task.
3: It was on television. It's not Love. Uh, oh, I thought it was "We Take Manhattan," but maybe that was another one. Uh, I nicked that. "We Take Manhattan" is a. I think it's uh, been, No, it's a famous. See, I love those American Jewish uh, songwriters. They're all fantastic. Uh, uh, I mean, that was Leonard Cohen.
4: Yeah. Um. First, we take Manhattan. Yeah. Then we take Berlin
3: I remember mean, my best my favorite one was Roger and Hart uh-huh. oh, his dialogue was fantastic it was, to me it's as good as uh, some poets poems I mean they're kind of again really, they're a bit like photography they're poets for the people in a funny sort of way I mean Do,
4: does, does it does it make you at all sad that the the the, the Seeing women like Jean Shrimpton, you know, she talked about it, how how sad it was when she realized she was no longer a beautiful woman, you know, that she she had this sort of this, you know, the transience of beauty. It is something that that really is at the heart of fashion, I think. Desire and the transient, well, maybe the transience of desire as well. I mean, they're huge subjects for artists for always. The transience of beauty is one. Do you, how do you feel about that? Like when you look at your work and you've, you've, you've made these time capsules in a way of, of these incredible people who either aren't here anymore or, or are now kind of old.
3: No, I'm sad. I, I, do, I have noticed that about women getting older, you know, great beauties getting older. But some of them are okay because they've got the bone structure. I mean, Jean's bone structure is quite good. She has a very square jaw. And uh, I remember I had, had a big fight with Vidal Sassoon who wanted to do one of his haircuts on her. And I said, well, that's the most stupid idea I've ever heard. She looked like a box. You know.
4: <laughs> oh, God, that would have been horrible.
3: <laughs> Talked to me for a couple of years. I think she was so angry, that I, I mean, Jean would have refused anyway. She, she's, she's such a sweet woman, Jean. I still see her a lot. And Penelope Tree? Fantastic. She's sort of, in a way, she's the most intelligent woman I've, or intelligent person I've ever met. She gets straight to the core of things. She's very clever.
4: Um, you, you say in the book that you think about death every single day. Is that
3: true? Not so much. You think I think about it more now, where it's just knocking on my door when Pete's Pete sort of sending me invitations. But... Uh, when I get to Pete on the gate, I'm going to say, I want to go back. I don't want to come into your gaff. I vote for the old gaff <laughs> down on Earth. And, uh, yeah, no, it's... Uh, but I suppose if there's no death, there's no life. I mean... Yes,
4: it's true.
3: I don't know. I mean, everything dies. In, I mean, the whole universe is going to die one day. So, it's, so if you could plan on living for 3 billion years, I think... Get it over with now. <laughs> I guess, remember what David
4: Hockney said, the cause of death is birth.
3: <laughs> yeah, but it's true, isn't
4: it? Do, do, you think about, do you think about your legacy? Do you think about this enormous amount of work that you that you're leaving to to this incredible historical, emotional, social, personal record that you're leaving behind?
3: What will happen to it all? and uh, no, I'm sure my kids and my wife will look like I'm 24 years older than my wife. So she's got a bit more time than I've got. But uh, I, I sort of don't really think about that. I just think of, I don't know when it dead, it's a bit of an existential idea, really, because it's all fortuitous, because that's a, if you want to get intellectual, it's a fortuitous nature to change all the time. I mean, Buddha would like it anyway. So I think Buddha was a reality where our, our God is not reality. He's <laughs> so thinking. Our imagination
4: well, I think our God is more of a political politically expedient idea for people than it is a sort of spiritual spiritual yeah. notion yeah when you look at the world now what do you think what 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 um, crosses your mind what's happened to the world
3: well I think it's happened before so I think about it I think my god the plague was a bit like it is now and it was good for the workers but bad for the people who died so yeah. There's always going to be disasters in life because that's that's the way it is. I mean, maybe we're not meant to be on this planet. I'm sorry, always oh, talking to me, my friend. Go away. Uh, yeah. So it, uh, I don't, it doesn't bother me. Does it bother you?
4: Uh, very much. Yeah. I I, I just I, you know I, I I despair of what we're doing to the world around us. That isn't that has no you know what we're doing to. Uh, how many hundreds of billions of animals die every year, and and you know, this sort of if if there is such a thing as karma, every day we're we're just loading it on more and more and more. You know that what we're doing to the planet, I find very very
3: disheartening. Well, I do What I can do about it? Because you say that to a six-year-old show and says, well, "What are you doing about it?"
4: <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, what I know, my, I do what I can. That's all I can say. You, you said you're not nostalgic, but I get the feeling that, that you're 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 very idealistic. I mean, the book ends with you um, back and Barking with, with um,
3: Darren Rodwell.
4: Yeah, Darren Rodwell in, involved in in you know making the, 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 the uh, regenerating the area, um, and and it, it feels that there's a sort of political. Political activist there at the end of the book, um, and I, I just want, and and then if I go back thinking about that, I, I go back and there's all these sort these idealistic things in the book. I don't know whether you'd deny that because you, you you're kind of very good at um, at kind of making fun of your better nature you know, through the book, it's quite, it's its one of the little subtexts. but do you feel, do you feel you're, you're idealistic now? Do you feel that you would like that to be part of your legacy, that you can leave something that is useful for people?
3: Well, I think that's on the plus side of living, isn't it? In a way, it's sort of, I know there's that old saying that it fits me perfect: "Is the left think I'm right and the right think I'm wrong, so that's what I feel about life, because I do think Lots of things about the left is obviously right. (laughs) The right say, well, you're wrong. But then things on the right are right. (laughs) It's a a whole confusion. You have to ban this out. So uh, in a way, I've stepped outside of politics because I'd never vote. And so if I don't vote, I haven't really got a right to say what I I think in a way. I I mean, I have to keep what I think to myself. So I never vote. I think the left thing I'm right and the right thing I'm wrong is, is a true saying. But you're
4: also doing something though. You're not just, you're not, you haven't abdicated yourself from, uh, from the process completely. You're actually engaged in, in projects and, and consciousness raising exercises, you know, which feels very optimistic to me.
3: Barking and Dagenham are the last of the East End in a way, because you go before that, like, you can get right into Essex. There's still East Ham, but East Ham is a bit of a lost case. I mean, it's still pretty awful. But uh, so they've got somebody good there working for them uh, in Dagnum and Barking. So I support him when I can. In fact, I've done a new book, another book, called The Road to Barking, which is coming out in February, I think, January or February.
4: And that's a sort of... That, that's, that's, that, that's a book, from what I understand, that's a book that's designed to make people look at, look again, look again at, 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 Barking and, and East Ham and look, you know, take another look at the, I think it's good.
3: That's the way I do books. I mean, when they're street photography, they're they're just trying to show, it's difficult because if you take pictures of people, it looks like, sometimes it looks like you're taking the piss. I don't want to be condescending, you know, like, look how fat this woman is, but if they're fat, I'm afraid they're, they're going to be fat in my pictures because I can't. I'm not for their feelings, so they they just need lose some weight. But uh, I really, uh, yeah, I care about it in a way, but I'm not committed to it. I'm not, not a saint. Thank God. Well,
4: I mean, that's the idea of the book. I mean, any picture you take, you would tell people, whatever they see immediately, look again, and they'll see something else, you know. You also talk about doing a new book of um, box of pinups. You said you're working on that from, uh, you know, that, that, that very first classic um, endeavor with everybody from Lord Snowdrop to the Cray, to the Cray Twins, just an incredible time capsule that is. But you said you're working on a new one
3: been working on it for about three years with Taschen, you know, is a big publisher, uh, we will probably get around to doing it eventually, because at the moment I'm doing a fashion book with him of the 80s, which would be quite good, I think, it'd be a big, big thing, it'd be a baby sumo, as they call them, so, um,
4: it's incredible, that sumo,
3: yeah, but meeting Taschen has changed my life in a way, well, doing a sumo, is like getting an Oscar, I can't think of a better award. It's it. incredible,
4: and it sits on a table, just like a special table, just like an Oscar as well. Yeah. Who great. you know, you 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 summed up that that moment in the first box of pinups with people. It was with people like the Cray Twins and Mick Jagger and and all the other people that were in that original book. A really wide range, you know, right across the whole social spectrum. Who do you think? sums up now who, who are the people that you feel define this moment
3: that's a, that's 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 the reason it's hard to do a book of pinups because it's not nobody sticks out like they used to it's kind of become all melted down into one uh i think in the end it's going to have to be personal it's going to be my per- very personal feelings because there's too much choice now but do you keep it to english or do you keep it to american and French and whatever, but global. I suppose that in a way, the box peanut should really be English in a way, because it's a very oh. English. What, and what do
4: you what do you find most? What gives you the most pleasure now in your life? Well, besides sex. Yes, <laughs> I was giving you. I was. I was being the straight man there. I was giving. I was feeding you the line.
3: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I wouldn't have expected any other answer, but yes, apart from sex, what else?
3: We just all the ordinary things that people like. I like, I'm in Devon at the moment, and I've been, I haven't been down here for three years because the house was in, been leaked, it had a leak or something, I mean, I don't know. But uh, it's seen how, what a beautiful autumn it is. I mean, I don't know if it's this autumn, especially beautiful, but it seems more brown than any autumn I've ever seen. I mean, you notice things more as you get older, (laughs) but I've always noticed this thing, and I think the autumns are much more autumn-y than they've ever been this year. But it's quite exciting. The autumn of your years. (laughs) Well, in a way, it's not. It's wild strawberries. my Bergman's wild strawberries. You've
4: ever seen that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think nature's been an incredible compensation this year for everybody. It's been a very strange state of affairs that as nature seems to have turned on the, the human species it's also giving us this, this incredible vision these incredible visions of the world you know
3: no, it seems breathtaking everywhere i look i see pictures and uh, someone's going to take it with their iphone but that's where that's where I, the iphone screwed you up in a way because you can't compete with everybody in the world with an iphone what pictures are you taking now pictures I know and not really, oh, oh I, I do lots of things. I, I still paint and do do movies a bit and uh, uh, sort of a bit varied. It depends on the week. This week it's painting because in Devon there's nothing to photograph. Well, there's everything to photograph, but it's just Dartmoor. I've done so many pictures of Dartmoor. But it's just uh, this, this two weeks I just probably paint all the time. Uh-huh
4: um do you do you have uh do you have one do you have a a, a shoot or a set of images or one image even that you would that you feel defines you if somebody you know every every great photographer you can usually think of one thing that 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 really sums them up I mean do you have anything like that in your
3: yeah work He's, 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 thank God you didn't say what's your favourite. Let's just like say Sherbert lemons. When I was, <laughs> high. but what my favourite is? I've got one picture that I think sums up everything. It was Michael Caine picture I did, probably in the mid '60s, of him with a cigarette, unlit cigarette, and his glasses, all ugly. Oh up God, it's so good. That su- sums up my photography anyway. And I know Michael likes that one as well. Uh, but I think that sums up. The sixties for me—that one picture in a way, yeah, a mini skirt is close up Michael Kane, which is long <laughs> way.
4: <laughs> I also love the photo of you in the t- in the bow tie, the sort of very very louche looking. Um, you know, you you when you take. Uh, I think um, to have all these photos of yourself must be very entertaining to look back through. I mean, this 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 one I find I'd never seen that one before, and. Um, mm. That is just that photo is so loaded. Oh my God, there's such a subtext in that picture. But um, no, that one of you in Goodbye Baby with a bow tie and you're looking completely looking like you've been out, you know, looking like a 19th century. Uh, or
3: something like that. <laughs> That's what Rieland, Dinah the fashion used to say. I love he looks like
4: Baudelaire <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Baudelaire you see yes exactly I, I would have said yeah maybe a bit younger maybe Rambo but um
3: well, uh, tired streaks of blue in those days <laughs> uh,
4: i think that's our hour
3: um
4: so uh it's been wonderful talking to you and and um thank you so much for for uh, everything
3: thank you you ask great questions anyway. I'll- It wasn't even the
5: usual
3: questions.
5: If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, learning materials from BOF Education.
6: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.